0: Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman.
1: Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs.
0: It's a refreshing, common sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman.
1: Hello everyone, thank you for joining me today on Getting Common. I am Professor Carlos Chapman, and by day I am an associate professor at Washington and Lee University School of Law, where I teach all things business and commercial law and write on business, legal ethics, corporate governance, and personhood rights. The topic of today's episode is the fight for the right to choose, and it is a very timely topic because as we record right now, the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments In Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, a case out of Mississippi that seeks to implement a ban on abortion at 15 weeks and that also seeks to overturn Roe v. Wade and Casey, the two cases that give us the right to choose. So, in addition to that, on September 1st, Texas passed an abortion ban at six weeks that, because of the procedural requirements, has been allowed to stand. So, for the last three months, Texas has had a de facto ban on abortion that has been mired in the courts and impossible uh, to unravel. So to kick off our discussion today, I have assembled some great guests and I'll let them each introduce themselves starting with uh, Professor Anthony Christ.
0: Hey, uh, so I'm Anthony Kreiss. I am an assistant professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law and also a proud alumni of Washington Lee University School of Law. Um, But I I teach constitutional law, focus on civil rights, and I do a lot of work as well as a political scientist um, with American political development and how law and society and courts interact. So uh, good to be here and I'm very happy to be part of the inaugural podcast. So congratulations on that.
1: Thank you. Our next guest is Galena Varchina of NARAL Pro-Choice Virginia.
2: Hi, um, I'm the policy director for NARAL Pro-Choice Virginia um, and also an attorney, and I've been with the organization since... 2017 and during which time we've done some really good things in Virginia, but now post this election we're going to have to do a lot of defense. Mm-hmm. So um I'm glad to be here to talk about this important issue. And I just came back from the protest in front of the Supreme Court. It's a wild, wild time.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, I like, you know, I, I always feel, you know, whenever there's Supreme Court Day, I feel very anxious. And then I feel anxious until June about it. Um and so I kind of wish they would decide a little sooner, but But here we are. All right. And last but not least, uh, my dear friend, Richard Jones, who is a doctor in Maryland. Introduce yourself, Richard.
0: Hello. So I am a practicing obstetrician-gynecologist. I've been doing this for 15 years um, and I work for the University of Maryland at the Capital Region Health Center. And I have a special interest in contraception. access to poor women of color. um, Big issue here in the DMV
1: region particularly with getting them to get abortion, I guess. All right. And so I'm very excited to have Richard because uh, we will do something that I think is a little unusual um, in the discussions of abortion towards the end of the show, which is we're going to actually ask a doctor. Imagine that. Like, imagine actually asking a doctor what they think about the right to choose. So to kick us off, let's start with what is happening today, what's happening in the court, and why it matters. And so for our first question, I'd like to, to throw it to Anthony and ask, as our resident constitutional law professor, can you give us some insight on what's happening in the court today?
0: Yeah, so I I think it's actually really, you know, we'll take a step back and talk about what the, the law is and what the precedent that everyone's fighting over actually is, um, because I think there's a lot of confusion about um, you know, what, what the law, the state of the law is, but also, um, you know, what's really at stake in terms of the legal analysis. So, of course, everyone talks about Roe versus Wade as being, right, the foundational principle um, that there's a fundamental right to abortion and, and to reproductive health. And, you know, to, for a large part, right, that's true. Um, but the, the most important case in terms of actually how the law works, right, in terms of how courts apply Tests and, and, and analyze whether or not a particular law um, unconstitutionally prohibits or impedes a woman's right to choose, uh, that, that decision is called Casey. Right? Casey versus Planned Parenthood happened in the early 90s. Um, Roe versus Wade had set up in 1973 what we call the trimester system or the tri- trimester framework, where basically the, the Supreme Court tried to say essentially that uh, in every trimester, the state's interest in regulating abortion increased, and therefore uh, the states could impose more restrictions on abortion. Uh, in 1992, the Supreme Court ditched that framework in large part, but what they did was reaffirm the central holding of Roe. So what really is at stake in many respects is 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 Casey in many of these cases, although I'll, I'm going to put a pin on that for a second because I think what, what's at issue today is actually Roe. Um, so it's, it's kind of, <laughs> which is probably kind of confusing to some folks. So I, I want to kind of peel the onion away a little bit more. So, what Casey versus Planned Parenthood essentially said um, was that there's these basic kind of rules, right? That the first thing is that pre viability, right? So, in other words, before a child could, can live on their own outside the womb, uh, a state can't. Per- Uh, forbid abortion, right? Post viability, the state has a greater degree of interest um, in prohibiting and restricting abortion access so long as it provides certain uh, exceptions for, for example, the life of the mother and and health and things of that nature. Um, But the state still has the ability to impose certain burdens and regulations Pre viability, but there's a standard called the undue, undue burden standard, uh, which essentially says that if the if the regulation imposes an undue burden, in other words, if the there's a substantial obstacle that's placed um, in the way of a woman seeking an abortion, that that would not be constitutional. So there's this kind of burden. And I don't want to call it burdensome, that's not the good word. But it's 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 a little bit trickier of a of a framework that the courts have to to impose. So for example. Uh, the Supreme court said in casey that uh you know an informed re- uh, consent requirement with some kind of 24 hour waiting period that was not an undue burden um, on on a woman's right to an abortion um having a minor seek parental uh consent with some kind of judicial bypass that was not a burden uh undue burden but requiring a woman who was married to seek uh, her husband's uh, uh um you know, or a former husband prior to, to an abortion, that was an undue burden. So, so there's this kind of analysis that's that's done um, there. Now, I guess we'll we'll probably talk about trap laws later because I think that's a different right. That's a it's not a different, but a somewhat distinct issue. Um, but but what's at issue here is not really Casey because uh, Casey reaffirmed that the fundamental. Or one of the fundamental holdings of Roe, which was that not only do women have a fundamental right to abortion access, but pre-viability, uh, the state has a very limited interest in restricting abortion, right? That, 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 that the state cannot wholesale ban abortions pre-viability. Mississippi has done in in today what the issue is in the Dobbs case is that Mississippi said that at 15 weeks, uh, with very few exceptions, that abortions are essentially banned in the state of Mississippi, which is a pre viability ban, right? It's not some kind of regulatory scheme that imposes some kind of requirement on doctors or healthcare providers pre you know pre viability. It is saying a certain subset of pre pre viable pregnancies. Are, un, are, are unlawful. And so, you know, while I, like, so that's why I say, you know, oftentimes Casey versus Planned Parenthood, right, that's the that's the case that governs and that's the, the precedent that really matters. While that's true 90% of the time, what's really at issue today, I think is in fact Roe, right? And, and it is in fact the idea that the state does not have the capacity to pre-viability ban abortions. And that's really the fight that we're having in the Supreme Court today.
1: And, and, you know, Galena, I'd, I'd love for you to follow up because, you know, you're there for the protest today. Um, and I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about how an organization like NARAL is impacted by what's happening in each of these individual states and what's happening in the Supreme Court. We keep having I feel like every term we've got an abortion case. Uh, and so how does that impact you as an organization that seeks to, uh, you know, provide women with access?
2: Sure, Um I'm located in Virginia where um, over the last few years we've uh, removed some of our worst restrictions on reproductive rights. So we've got rid of the 24 hour waiting period and a whole host of other restrictions. And unfortunately, during this election it looks like the pendulum is going to swing the other way. We're, we had a House election and governor's lieutenant governors and AG. All of the statewide went to anti-choice candidates and on the House, we're still waiting for two seats, which if they, if it goes our way, it'll be 50-50. If it doesn't, it will be um, 52 Republican members and 52 anti-choice Republican members. So if um, the Supreme Court decides in June that um, Roe is overturned, then that emboldens the Republicans, not just to reinstate the restrictions that we already got rid of, but really go a, a lot further than that. And in the meantime, it also is definitely embold- emboldening the, um, the legislature to possibly reinstate some of those restrictions and seek to figure out additional restrictions that might not be covered by the current law or by the current case and try to find novel ways to restrict because they see an opportunity. And regardless of the decision, because the court has agreed to hear it, it signals that there's a possibility to overturn. But also, Virginia is currently located among, to the south of us and to the west of us. If Roe is overturned, a lot of those states will entirely lose abortion access. And that means all of those people are going to try to seek abortion elsewhere. And a lot of them will come to Virginia if abortion remains legal and remains ex- somewhat accessible in Virginia. So we're not just fighting for our own state, in our own state, but we're also fighting for all of those other folks who have to seek abortion and might have to travel north or east to us to get to get the health care th- that they need. All
1: right now, you know, Anthony, I have a question. So you know, I've, I've, I've had folks texting me, you know, questions all morning as the arguments happen, you know, lay folks. And, you know, one question I got was, you know, if Casey gets overturned with the viability um, test, why couldn't we just go back to Roe with the trimester test? Like, why do both cases go if one falls?
0: Well, I mean, essentially, it, well, I think it's because of Dobbs, right? So, if, if Dobbs, Comes out, uh, you know. I think the only way Mississippi can win is if the fundamental right underpinning of, of, of Roe, which upheld Casey, right, is is gutted um, because it doesn't fit with Casey, right. So because it's a pre viability ban. I don't think it's. I don't think the, the the Casey framework is really an issue. It is the right. It is the core fundamental holding of Roe that is at issue, and if that is undermined and gutted, then Casey falls along with it. Right? You could see a scenario where where Casey gets overturned or modified, but the fundamental underpinning on, and holding of Roe is upheld. Um, And so I think that's really what's happening here, right? Is that you can't, you really, I I don't, unless you significantly modify Roe, which I don't, or or Casey rather, which I don't think you're going to see, I think Roe is just going to go out the door. Now, in in many ways, um, right, Casey is a much more permissive uh, ruling for abortion restrictions than the Roe Roe trimester uh, framework was. So so if the court is anti-Casey, then the court is certainly going to be anti-Roe as it was originally handed down. So I, uh, you know, it, it, it's really, um, I think it's really, this, this case is really quite precarious for abortion rights um, because it, it's it's like, it, it's almost, I, I guess the way I've described it to my, some of my students, it's like, you know, you're playing Jenga and, you, and you're going for the, the, the piece at the very bottom that's upholding everything. And so if you knock that piece out, um, and that's what Dobbs would allow, the entire structure is going to fall. So so I really think that's what we're seeing here. And, and that's why, um, you know, in many respects, this is this is kind of the um, I think in many respects, it might be the death knell of abortion rights as a constitutional right.
1: Um, you know, I have, I have one question that's kind of not in our plan, but, um, you know, if if we're waiting until June for Dobbs to figure out Texas, Um, isn't that essentially a ruling in and of itself to let it stand that long, right? If we let a Texas ban stand from September to June, um, regardless of what the outcome is of Dobbs, you know, is that not signaling to everyone that suddenly we can combine civil procedure with our constitutional law and, you know, we can at least get a rights restriction for almost a year if we simply combine civ pro tactics with con law?
0: I mean, how, how many women have already been denied right access to reproductive health care because of the Supreme Court's inaction? Um, you know, and, and every day that they wait, there's somebody else who who loses the access or will have to be forced to leave the state of Texas in order to seek um, you know health care. Um, it, it, it's I think that the scary part is on the one hand, the justices recognize that the Texas system, which essentially delegates to private parties the enforcement of laws to restrict constitutional rights that that is a danger for their own interests right and they see that um, you know you could see coming down the pipeline right anti-gun laws that do that or um, you know any other host you know number of, of, of different things um, that really threaten conservative interests so they're not going to let that stand long term because that's that's you know the long you know the long game that's also not good for them at the same time, I think what's happening is the court is testing the resolve of the American people, because the more that Texas de facto has a banned abortions in the state um, and the, the more that they look around and say, oh, people will just tolerate it and accept it. The more likely it is that Dobbs is going to come out in a way that you know overturns you know the entire apple cart and Casey will be out the door. And so will be the fundamental underpinning. Right. That that was that was the the a key holding in Roe, So every day, I think that, that the Texas abortion law is allowed to stand even just as a civil procedure matter or a fed courts matter, um, is, is another day that marks the more likely death knell of, of Roe via the Dobbs decision, um, that, that the court is listening or having arguments over today.
1: Alina, how has, uh, NARAL dealt with, you know, the existence of the Texas law and, and sort of your, your fundraising and your planning, um, you know, are, are y'all kind of anticipating a world where you may need to shuttle women across the country or even out of the country to, just to, to give them the services that, that you seek to provide?
2: I mean, there is a broad national coalition of folks, including providers, national organizations, statewide organizations, abortion funds, advocates, activists, who are and have been working on a specific problem. And yes, that if... As SBA still stands in Texas, there are already women traveling to Maryland to get abortions, to other states to get abortions, right? Especially because right now the the states that are bordering Texas where abortion is available. Those clinics have long waiting lists because they have reached their capacity. So... Absolutely, that is a consideration. Uh, NARA approaches Virginia, we don't provide direct services, so our fundraising is particular to Virginia politics, policy, grassroots work, um, you know, advocacy work. Um, but we are helping abortion Mm -hmm. funds fundraise, right? We uplift our abortion funds and those abortion funds are providing services and our independent providers in Virginia are providing services, including services to folks who are coming from outside the state. And it's not just people from Texas, it's people from Tennessee, it's people from West Virginia, because in those states, abortion is also restricted and they have fewer clinics and it's easier to travel across the border to Virginia than try to obtain abortion in those home states.
1: You know, Galena raises a very important point, which is that supporting organizations like NARAL and supporting organizations that are engaged in this state law advocacy is very, very important. And so I just want to remind y'all that NARAL is a nonprofit and could use your donations. And so uh, you can donate at https secure.everyaction.com. Um, and then it'll you know, tell you from there how to donate to Pro-Choice of Virginia. Um, and so we'd greatly appreciate your donations to help us keep this fight going and to make it a world where should Roe fall, at least we can engage in a state-by-state fight to, to make us have abortion access in as many states as possible. Um, now, Anthony and I have both written on some of these issues. And we even both participated in a virtual roundtable at my home institution, Washington & Lee, uh, that focuses on my tweet from a couple of years ago about fetal personhood and abortion bans. Um, So my article, which is entitled, If a fetus is a person, it should get child support, due process, and citizenship, and Anthony's article entitled, Under 10 Eyes, are both available at the law school's Law Review's website HTTP law edu in the roundtables category. So you can go read all of our articles on these issues and see that we just don't do this for fun. Like we actually are all experts on these issues uh, while you're donating uh, to NARAL and other organizations. Now, for our next topic, what I would like to do is get technical. Those of us who work in the pro-choice movement throw around a lot of words like trap laws and larks and, you know, all these words that that people really don't understand what we're talking about. And so I just want to talk about what some of these legal terms mean. And for this one, I'd like to start with Galena, who is a policy director and obviously has to communicate some of these scientific terms to legislators and other lay people. Um, And I'd love for you to kick us off by telling us, like, legally, Or, you know, even just in the context of of case law, what is viability? Like, what what do we mean when we throw around the word viability?
2: So viability isn't um, a fixed point in time. People tend to think of it as a fixed point in time, but every pregnancy is different. And in every pregnancy, the point at which a fetus, if it was delivered, could survive is different. Currently, the accepted standards are around 24 weeks, but that varies from pregnancy to pregnancy. So when the Supreme Court talks about viability, it pinned its standard on something that is ill-defined and is not a concrete thing and is a little bit arbitrary because it varies from pregnancy to pregnancy. So um, I would say that that was a flawed standard in and of itself. But having the viability standard does mean that before viability, under the current law, states cannot restrict abortion beyond what has been called undue burden. And after that, they have a lot more of an ability to restrict. But that kind of varies from state to state. So in Virginia, we have a trimester network and an, um, a trimester framework. And in other states, there's a viability framework where they do point at a specific time during pregnancy. But that's not a That is not a medical distinction. That's a distinction made in the law that's not necessarily grounded in medical science.
1: And, you know, I always find it interesting. Our our resident doctor actually had to go deliver a baby as as baby (laughs) gents do. And so hopefully he'll be able to join us for the Q&A session at the end. Uh, But, you know, whenever, you know, just in law school and in studying these cases, I always found it fascinating that the Supreme Court picked a term and picked a point in time. Um, that a doctor would not use, you know, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. You know, I don't even know if they use the word viability. They they use a lot of other factors in deciding, you know, when a woman can, is allowed to continue to have, you know, still have access to an abortion. Um, And so it's also fascinating to me that legislators that are full of, you know, people who could not identify female anatomy on a chart or on a diagram, just kind of pick arbitrary, you know, points in time of deciding uh, when women can and should have access, Uh, which kind of transitions me to the next, uh, you know, kind of thing I love a definition of, uh, and I'll I'll turn to Anthony on this one. Um, You know, we've seen trap laws um, and we've seen trap laws stand, um, you know, varying degrees of trap laws. So I'd love for, you know, Anthony, for you to just tell us what a trap law is and we can kind of chat about what types of things have been allowed and been found to not be an undue burden?
0: Yeah, so trap laws are they're targeted restrictions on abortion providers. So it is an acronym, um, and they're essentially you know the, these regu- regulations on abortion providers, um, which you know on their face could be seen as right neutral, uh, but which in fact are not. Right, they are they are very costly. Um, very highly regulatory, often completely medically unnecessary um, you know uh, completely um, right unremoved from from science or evidence-based um, you know legislating um, and these require and they're right so they I would call them like these kinds of requirements um, and they're imposed on abortion providers in the hopes that they will be so burdensome that they will make uh, abortion access, you know, either completely unavailable in a state or almost impossible to obtain in a state because, you know, nearly, you know, we'll say um, almost no abortion providers will be able to meet those, right, those regulatory standards or very few will be able to. Um, And, you know, again, on their face, they, you know, you could look at them and maybe an average person would say, oh, that seems reasonable. Uh, But when you peel, again, the layers of the onions back, um, you know, you realize that there's something much more sinister afoot. Um, and so, for example, I, I think the two biggest ones that we saw uh, happen a lot, um, you know, in I would you know say pre 2016, so maybe 20, you know, 2010 to 2016, um, were were these requirements that abortion providers uh, basically were held up to the same code requirements as ambulatory surgical centers, um, right? So if you were having a a you know, a minor—you know, well, maybe not minor, but a more substantial but uh, surgical procedure, but didn't need to be admitted to the hospital, um, right? That there were certain standards that were that were laid out for for providers of those kinds of services, um, but that's not necessary for for abortion providers, um, and so you know, states were trying to create these requirements that said, well, you know, abortion providers need to be upheld to the same standard as ambulatory surgical standard centers. Um, and we needed to do this for, you know, women's health. We're out of the interest of making sure that abortions are safe. Right. But that's also completely untrue, right. It's not necessary um, to have those kinds of standards for abortions to be safe because abortions were overwhelmingly safe well before those standards were put in place. Um, similarly, uh, you would have requirements that doctors at uh, you know doctors performing abortions would have to have admitting uh, privileges at a nearby hospital, um which is also again not necessary not medically necessary um and is unrelated to the the safety of of abortion services. um you know and, and and so um, again, right? The argument would would be made, you know, this is a insurance policy to to prevent, um, you know, some kind of medical catastrophe or to protect women from from you know bad situations. But it's again not right. There's nothing in the evidence. There's no evidence to suggest that that was um, that was the case at all. So in 2016, the Supreme Court held um, in in Women's Health, uh, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt, that that these kinds of trap laws are going to be subjected to a kind of heightened judicial review, right? A heightened scrutiny. Um, And the courts really need to look at the underlying rationales for these uh, these policies and not just kind of take the state's um, uh, justifications at face value. Now, this is key because what Whole Women's Health basically said um, was that we're not going to look at Undue burdens um, and these trap laws with this with a kind of rational basis review, rational basis review being this idea that if the state has a plausible justification for something um, and, it, and it's not a discriminatory regulation and applies everybody, um, you know I'm simple, oversimplifying this a bit, but but basically that as long as there's a decent justification on paper, the court is not going to second guess that legislative judgment. That's not what the court said we need to do in an undue burden case, right, going back to Casey, uh, when these these trap laws are put into place. So essentially uh, what the, the government or the court said that governments have to do is show what the state of government interest is and explain precisely why that interest is necessary and right and and kind of um, explain. Uh, the, the kind of cost-benefit analysis. So, in other words, the state has to show that there's a that there's not only a uh, um, you know a state interest in these laws, but that this advances directly that state interest, and that the costs of the state's interest don't vastly outweigh the burdens that are imposed on women, and that courts need to demand actual evidence for the the justification supporting these laws, right? So we're not just going to take the state's word for it, that the state has to produce Evidence that these things are necessary, and on top of that, um, you know that we shouldn't also think about these things in piecemeal, right? So you might you might look at, for example, the ambulatory surgical care uh, center requirements and say, well, you know, that's that might be rational, that might not be not, and, and kind of look at it right as a singular thing, or look at the admitting privileges requirement and looking at that as a singular thing. But we also should we should look at the right the uh, regulatory scheme as a whole. Right, and the cumulative effects of the abortion regulatory scheme that is put in place by a state, um, and so that right, so so that that kind of um, you know it, it, oftentimes a constitutional law, right? We think about laws as they come to us, right? So we, we look at one law and say, okay, what's the justification for this particular law, and how does this weigh out given the interest of the state and whatever it does, uh, you know, to other folks or discrimination, you know, like. Um, But here we're really doing a much more comprehensive approach um, to understanding how the entire regulatory scheme might impose a burden on a woman's access to to abortion and reproductive health care. Right. That's not rational basis. That's a that's a you know, it's not strict scrutiny either, but it's certainly a, a fairly robust inquiry as to what is the state doing? What is the state trying to achieve? Does it actually achieve that interest? And Um, You know, is there actually some other kind of thing, you know, is there something else happening here, right? Is this all pretextual um, in in order to just eradicate abortion providers and limit the access to reproductive health care for women within a particular state? So, um, you know, that's a very important case. Now, again, that was 2016. Um, right, so we're only talking five, you know, almost five years ago that that came down, and the Supreme Court reaffirmed it, uh, you know, a couple of terms later uh, in, a, in a case called June Medical. So it is it is remarkable that we are here in you know 2021 relitigating things that that were you know not just re, you know firmly established in the law, but but reinforced right in the last. Five years, not just once, but twice. Um, and, and to kind of go back to our round table, right, to reference reference that, you know, what I wrote in that piece, and, and I think what we've engaged in dialogue since, is that there's been no fundamental change in the science, in healthcare practice, or anything that justifies overturning Roe, Casey, and and whole women's health. There's nothing. What we have here is a political dynamic, a political coalition which has had, you know, secured a stranglehold on the Supreme Court uh, because you had a president who was elected by a minority of Americans, right? Not even a plurality, but in fact a minority of Americans who then nominated a, a, you know, three justices who were then ratified or confirmed by Senate. Uh, with a majority vote that was representative for the first time ever of a minority of Americans. And now they have the ability to overturn a precedent which is supported by a majority of Americans. And and so this is their opportunity, I think, for them, or so they think, to snuff out abortion rights once and for all. And if it's not now, it'll never come to pass. And so I, I think that we need to stop talking about this as being a matter of precedent or whether starry decisis matters or or whether this is really about science or principles or, or you know or whether the, it's about the rule of law it is about none of that it is fundamentally about one thing and one thing only which is power.
1: yeah and I, I find it fascinating you know I love that Justice Sotomayor today chose to open with that foundational question of how can people possibly have trust in the courts if it is clear, that like the only reason you're bringing this case is because the composition of the court changed, right? Like there is no other reason to bring this case other than the composition of the court changed. Uh, now, one thing I'd, lo- I'd love to talk to you a little bit about, Galena, is, you know, Anthony mentioned how, you know, we've got Hellerstedt in 2016, but up until 2016, you know, we've had the Hyde Amendment Hyde Amendment since the beginning of time, which, like, he- which restricts federal funds for abortions. Um, we've had these incremental... You know, kind of incursions on the right to choose since then, um, and as we wait for Supreme Court cases to happen, um, you know, states either you know clinics close or you know, you know, private doctors feel they they can't perform abortions anymore. And so, I would love to to talk with you about the disparate impact of of this cycle of legislation, especially in combination with the Hyde Amendment.
2: Certainly, so. One thing to remember about Hyde is, uh, one, it's fundamentally racist, and two, it's fundamentally classist. Um, if we look at what Representative Hyde actually said about his, um, his uh, Hyde Amendment, I would certainly like to prevent, if I could, legally anybody having an abortion, a rich woman, a middle-class woman, or a poor woman. Unfortunately, the only avail- vehicle available is the Medicaid bill. So he specifically targeted poor women because he could not or did not feel like he could target other women. And when you take Hyde, which prevents public funding from being used towards abortion care, and you take this plethora of restrictions across the, the states, these have a disparate impact, negative impact on women of color, on poor women, on women who are in rural districts. So If you have a job and your job that will not let you take multiple days off work to go get an abortion, the 24 hour waiting period is a huge burden or the 72 hour waiting period that exists in other States, right? If you cannot access abortion through Medicaid, then you have to pay for it out of pocket and it can become entirely inaccessible because it is not a cheap procedure. If you are, um living in a rural area, you may not have a provider within many, many miles because of the restrictions have made it so difficult for independent providers to provide abortions in those more rural areas. And so all this last work of restrictions in combination with Hyde really has affected disproportionately affected women of color, women who are low income, people who are pregnant, people who are low income and um, Uh, you know, people in rural areas. And it's important to remember that Black women are four times more likely to seek an abortion than their white counterparts. That means the impact is even more disparate on folks who need that care the most. Uh, So when we think about, you know, abortion rights, and we think about Roe and we think about Casey, those were promises that for many people have gone unfulfilled, right? That's the right for middle-class white women. And Mm -hmm. other folks have had difficulty accessing that right for decades. So when we think about state advocacy, especially in states that, you know, are more blue, have more approaches, legislators, the push has to be not just to codify Roe or codify abortion rights. The push has to be to overturn the state, hide restrictions that exist, to provide funding for abortion care, and to expand access because right now even in some of those states even in states like Virginia where we do have restrictions on you know uh, state funding for abortion care many women still find accessing the care very difficult many pregnant people still find accessing the, the care very difficult so i would say you know think broader than think broader than when you're advocating for abortion rights
1: and you know one one fact i find fascinating um, i was on the board of of planned parenthood go Gulf Coast in Houston. Um, And, you know, Houston is obviously a large metropolitan area. And so that abortion clinic uh, is large. Uh, But there, you know, even pre all of uh, of the recent developments, you know, maybe in the entire state of Texas, there were 12 abortion clinics. And Texas is the size of France, right? (laughs) Like 12 abortion clinics in that entire state. Um, And the whole Women's Health, the, the Dobbs v. I mean, Dobbs v. Jackson, Women's Health Today, Um, It is worth noting that Jackson Women's Health is the only abortion clinic in that entire state. Um, There may be two in Louisiana. So even in the context of now, when things are supposed to be good, um, you know, there are several states with one clinic, no clinic, etc. And so you already have women who have an undue burden because of the incremental incursions on the right to choose uh, since Roe and since Casey, um, and when you think about the economic factors of who has time to take off work and go get a transvaginal ultrasound on one day, wait seventy-two hours, and go back, and then have a procedure and possibly need to take a third day off of work, um, that that is a, definitely a class issue and a race issue, um, and so it it is you know it it has to it feels intentional, especially when you target Medicaid, add these waiting periods. Um, and, and kind of disregard the fact that you know the earlier you could have this procedure, the easier it is, and you are intentionally making it longer, which then makes it more difficult um, to uh, you know to have the procedure and to and to have the time to take off. Um, we've we've Absolutely. mentioned the height. Yeah. And we've kind of mentioned the Hyde Amendment back and forth without defining it and like what it is. Um, And so since we're in the define these terms segment, um, either of you would like to just just explain, you know, what the Hyde Amendment is.
2: Sure. So the Hyde Amendment under federal law restricts federal federal money from going towards abortion care. And it affects all kinds of kind of parts of the budget, but specifically Medicaid, the part that kind of is um, especially concerning is Medicaid cannot pay for abortion care. Federal Medicaid cannot. Now, in a variety, in some states, um, they do allow state funds go to go to Medicaid patients who get abortion care. Virginia, for example, does not accept in cases of rape, incest, um, life of the mother, or in cases of very severe fetal abnormalities. So every other person who needs an abortion has to pay out of pocket, or they have to have insurance that covers abortion care. Well, in addition to hide in the America, um, in Obamacare, there's the restriction that on the national exchange, you can, um, and on some state exchanges as well, you can't have um, uh, plans that cover abortion, within the same plan. And there's some kind of exceptions and ways around that. But in Virginia, until last year, even on the state exchange that is being created, you would not have been able to obtain coverage for abortion through your insurance. So that really restricts the ability of folks to get abortion who are lower income. Thankfully, we do have a lot of abortion funds, but the demand is bigger than the amount of, of money and resources those funds have. So if you really care about abortion, it is important to uh, support not just groups like mine who do policy work and advocacy work and, and Planned Parenthood, but also those abortion funds that are the safety net for folks who cannot get abortion coverage through Medicaid or through their insurance and need the money to be able to obtain the procedure. Because the longer you wait, as you said, the... Um, greater some of the risks are, the harder it is to go through the procedure. And if you're trying to get my, enough money together to have an abortion, you might make it past the viability standard or make it past the point where you can go to an abortion provider and have the procedure and have to go to a hospital to get the procedure, which increases the cost dramatically.
1: Now, what I what I find interesting about the Hyde Amendment impact on private insurance via the exchange um, is one of my true passions, which is corporate law and corporate governance and corporate personhood, uh, because it is fascinating to me that your private insurer um, can be bound by what feels like a religious exemption, per Justice Sotomayor (laughs) this morning, uh, from allowing your private insurance to cover abortion care simply because um, it is going through the federal exchange. Um, and I feel like that's a great transition for Anthony, who also loves Hobby Lobby and all of those personhood cases, uh, to kind of tell us about how the Hobby Lobby decision and those corporate personhood decisions like, are impacting this abortion uh, debate as well.
0: Yeah, so... I actually think there's a couple of things going on here. And I think Hobby Lobby is one of them. And I think there's another issue, which I'll, I'll rope in here too, where there's a print board is doing a very ugly pincher movement. And by that, I mean, <clears throat> while they are restricting abortion access, probably in Dobbs on the one hand, uh, whatever safety valves might be there to alleviate whatever right. Bad consequences are yielded from overturning Roe um, or, or Casey. They they're, they're kind of uh you know're they're, they're, they're um, you know preventing those safety valves from being released and exercised. So by that I mean, for example, in Hobby Lobby um, the Supreme Court held that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act gave employers right so corporate employers um, a who had a religious objection to providing uh, contraceptives for free through their health care plans had an out as a matter of federal law, um, and that the federal government would have to find another like workaround in order to ensure that contraception access was, was provided to employees of those, uh, employers with religious objections. So first of all, right. I think that's kind of crazy that there's this idea that a corporate interest has a religious belief that can be substantially burdened. Um, right. And that, that's a, that's a whole mess that we could have an entire podcast on, all right. But but the idea that you know that somehow you know that that the federal government has is restrained um, from ensuring, or it's or it's at least burdened from insuring, in ensuring that employees have access to to um, contraception, um, right? That actually makes unwanted pregnancies more likely, which makes which raises the likelihood of women needing abortions. So it you know it it doesn't in many respects right from if you're kind of looking at it from a policy perspective right it's it's a really tough thing to swallow when you look at it and you say well you want to restrict abortion access but you also want to make it harder to get you're right contraception uh coverage which would limit the number of abortions you would you would see um so that kind of preventative health care right and, and um you know or and, and that, that's actually just true just more generally right with folks uh refusing or resisting Medicaid expansion right we you know if if your ultimate goal right is to to limit the number of abortions and, and reduce it to a a very small number, then you should give people access to health care, right? That's, and and give them the choices and the the ability to exercise autonomy before they get to that point. Um, And, and then not judge them if they, you know, if you do get to the point that you need to have that, that kind of health, uh, you know, abortion access. But on the other hand, and I think this is also equally damaging, right? So this is the other pincher movement. Is that you're you're hearing arguments of well, this should just be returned to the states, right? That you have, it's this Alex Bickle nonsense of the counter-majoritarian difficulty. Well, you know, you you've removed the issue of abortion from public debate, from public scrutiny, from from uh, right, the legislative process on the states, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, let's take that argument as you know, for on its face as okay, not a problem. Like let's just return it to the states. Mm-hmm. Well. The Supreme Court has refused to do anything about, for example, gerrymandering, right? And so you have states like North Carolina, like Georgia, like Wisconsin, uh, like Pennsylvania, right, where, you know, Ohio for that matter, where the electorate does not reflect, right, the, the representation that's provided in those state houses, um, right? What incentive is there for North Carolina state legislators, for example, to be fairly moderate right let's say let's say rose overturned. north carolina is a 50-50 state in mm-hmm. a 50-50 state you might see right a legal regime that reflects something like casey right something like the law as it exists today but you're not going to see that because you have you know 60% of the legislators who are in safe districts are Republicans and their interest is to crack down on abortion, um, notwithstanding what the state as a whole wants, right? So, you know, you've got these, again, it's like these pincher movements where all these safety valves that would otherwise be there, to perhaps mitigate the damage that the court may well do in Dobbs, um, right? Those, you know, they're undermining it at every turn. And I think it's really both damaging for women's autonomy. Yes, absolutely. But it's also just bad for democracy, right? Where we don't have, where, where folks, you know, their fundamental rights are on the line. And, you know, when you're putting them on the line, you're not even allowing them to have a fair fight in in the state houses and, you know, with the, the folks that represent them. And I think that's very dangerous on multiple levels.
1: Well, and what always bothers me about why don't we return it to the states is like, did we not have a whole civil rights movement where we learned that the states should not be allowed to do some things? Right. Like the states are incompetent when it comes to preserving equality and giving people rights. Um, You know, the the last thing I want personally is for the state of Virginia, Texas or anyone to be deciding my personhood or my autonomy or my my privacy rights, because history tells me that it will not go well for me. Right. And so I always find it interesting that, you know, at its core, Roe v. Wade is a 14th Amendment right to privacy decision. Um, If we think about when the 14th Amendment is passed, right, it's a reconstruction amendment. And and so the response of, well, let the states have it, it's like, well, isn't that the whole point of the 14th Amendment? That the states can't, the states are not competent at giving people personhood rights. The states are not competent at equality. Um, You know, so how dare you say, like, let's return this part of it women's autonomy back to the States. Um, and, you know, Galena made a very important point in the chat, uh, that I want to get out is that, uh, you know, the very same people who want to restrict abortions are also against childcare, paid family leave. If you look at the current debates in Congress, um, and you look at all the things that are happening in the press when we talk about, oh my God, millennials don't want to have babies. Well, it's like, how can we afford to, (laughs) um, who can afford to have a baby when it costs $20,000 a year to go to do daycare, And when we all have student loans and when salaries haven't gone up and when my healthcare doesn't pay for even just birth control, so I have to pay for that out of pocket, um, you know, the system really isn't stacked up for the outcome that people desire, right? Um, One other point that I want to make is uh, there are these things called trigger laws, which we did not define. And uh, what trigger laws are is, is that as soon as Roe v. Wade, if Roe v. Wade is overturned by Dobbs. The very same day, there are at least 22 states where abortion is banned completely because they either have old laws on the books that will just be reinstated or they've got laws that will immediately ban abortion when Roe is overturned. Um, So you will go from one day having, you know, a majority, but not a good majority of women having the right to choose to virtually no one. Uh, because when you look at the cluster of, of where the 22 states are, you know, most women won't have access. All right. So we've only got five minutes left. And obviously there was a Supreme Court case today. Um, and so what I'd like to do for the last five minutes is let my guests tell me their predictions. What are your predictions for Dobbs v. Jackson? And I'll, I'll let Galena go first on this one. What are your
2: predictions? Um, I think judging from the questions from the conservative members of the court, they're definitely leaning towards overturning. Um, and we know that you know Justice Roberts um, is very concerned with the court's image and stare decisis, and he will likely side with liberal justices, but he's no longer the swing vote. Um, we have six very conservative justices, and many of them have stated previously that they are anti-choice that they think Roe was a bad decision, that they think Casey was a bad decision and based on bad principles, so I don't I don't see us coming out in June and celebrating a positive result. And even if even if they somehow finagle a decision that damages Roe but does not entirely overturn it, um, I would be uh, I wouldn't be surprised that that would open the floodgates for additional restrictions across the states.
0: Anthony? Yeah, I, yeah, I think I think that, uh, you know, the more I've listened to oral arguments you know, before we, we hopped on the call. And, and just the kind of gut instinct I've got, um, I, I think that, that Casey is basically going to be gutted Row is going to be pared back to essentially nothing, if anything. Um, and if there's anything that's going to save, you know, either the core holding row or some form of Casey or, you know, uh, a combination between that, it'll be because, it'll be because uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice, Chief Justice Roberts come up with some, you know, um, I think they're the ones to watch. I think they're the ones, if anybody, uh, will find some very narrow way to keep up, uh, you know, hold up row because Justice Barrett, but Barrett thinks there's no reliance interest and that she's just writing on a blank page. I think Kavanaugh is, is pretty clear that he's anti-Roe. There's no there's no uh, question about where Justices Alito and, and Thomas are. Um, and so I think it really will come down to, uh, you know, the chief justice and how much he thinks the court can withstand a public backlash uh, and how far Justice Gorsuch is willing to go along with with the, the chief on that one.
1: Yeah, I, I have no faith, but I mean, I've I I was negative for June. Like I was like, we're not even gonna win June women's health. Like I, I just have been, you know, convinced that we will like one, we essentially have bans on abortion in most states because you know, so many states have zero clinics, so many states have one clinic. Um, when you look at the impact of trap laws. Um, that has all but eliminated abortion in some states. Oh, Richard, you're back as we have like two minutes. <laughs> so we will have to have Richard back another time. Uh, but, you know, we look at the impact of trap laws and other laws. And so I, I basically have zero faith um, that that the the right to choose will stand. And I'm not even as optimistic as as Anthony. I think that, You know, we'll get a minority that Roberts joins the minority. And I don't even think Gorsuch is going to work to craft something in the middle. I I could see him signing on an opinion written by Alito and us having a 5 4 decision that essentially guts everything. Um, and, And I felt from the oral argument that they were trying to craft a kind of ad hoc. Like, we're not really undoing it. It's just that Casey was wrong. And like, like, I just felt like they were into some creative constitutional law, you know, manipulation uh, that, that the court is often want to do. All right. So uh, we've only got a couple minutes left. And so I would love to thank my inaugural guests for joining me on this first episode of Getting Common. Um, It is available on the Voice America website. And I forgot to mention the call in number, but this is a call in show. If anyone desires, I just keep forgetting to say that Um, we will upload this full episode onto YouTube at some point. Um, It is also available as a podcast on iTunes and you can join us this time next week when our topic will be free the hair and our guests next week will be Wendy green, professor Marissa Jackson. So and Rashida Thomas, and we will talk about hair care discrimination. Um, You are free to send me emails through the court, the, the, through the show webpage And you can reach out to me on social media. I'm at Carla C on all platforms and on the YouTube channel and the other posts. I will put in all the links and ways to reach our guests. So thank you all so, so much for joining us today. Thank you to Anthony Galena and Richard. Greatly appreciate you being here. Um, And maybe the world will not be as pessimistic as we feel. Maybe like there can be some positivity there. Um, I don't know. All right. Thank you all.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again
1: next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.